Well, good morning. So Heather and I met a couple the other day, and uh, we were having a conversation. The conversation was going really well, and uh, during in the midst of the conversation, the the husband looked at me and said, "So, what brought you the coal pepper?" And I looked at him and said, "Well, I'm a pastor." And in a split second, came and gone. I saw a look on his face, and the look was probably a combination of horror and disdain all at the same time, and then he recovered from it. But, in all honesty, the conversation was over within a minute after that. Whatever good conversation we had was done, and um, it was it was just quite an interesting thing to watch. Well, I was relaying that, that very conversation to my son, Jordan. He's a youth pastor in Boise, Idaho, and he and his wife, Hannah, had just gone on vacation a couple weeks ago, and he said, I had a similar thing happen to me. They were at Cannon Beach out in Oregon on the coast there just two weeks ago. And he and his wife liked to play games. And I don't know what game they were playing, but where they were staying, uh, there was um, a social get-together that they would have. And when they got done with the the game, he won. And if you know anything about my daughter-in-law, she lives to destroy you at any game that she plays. And so she was upset. Well, he was... My son, being a compassionate guy, he was. He was going, okay, I need, I need a kiss on the cheek because I won. Going on, well, there was an elderly lady there, in, you know, in the area, and she was having fun watching those two go back and forth. And she finally got up. She said, "Well, I'll give you a kiss." And so she came over and just gave him a great big old kiss on the cheek. Well, he said that uh, the next night they were in some sort of a social gathering. And uh, it came out that he was a pastor. And he said when she, that elderly lady found out that he was a youth pastor, she made some horrified comment about it. She couldn't believe it. And that, that was pretty much the end of the, um, the conversation. And what I'm relaying to you is something that maybe some of you are familiar with or have, have had happen to you. And today we begin a series on First Peter. And some may ask why I chose First Peter. I, I believe the... the reason boils down to Peter's purpose in writing this little epistle. He's writing to a church that is beginning to feel pressure. At at minimum, it's a a social pressure and even some ostracization going on. And at worst, it's actually persecution. Peter probably wrote this letter in the early 60s, A.D. 60 to 64, somewhere along in there. Not any later than that, because we know that uh, this was during the reign of Nero, and Nero was ramping up persecution of Christians. And we also know that ultimately Peter lost his life to Emperor Nero. As I told you last week, he was crucified upside down. Well, their their situation, the people that Peter was writing to in in Asia Minor, these different towns in Asia Minor, uh, their situation is similar to ours. I believe. And what I mean is that we are beginning to feel the same kind of pressure as Christians. Many of us grew up in the the kind of America that saw Christianity as a positive in society, didn't we? Wasn't it just even as early or as as near history as the 1990s where politicians would tell you how much of a Christian they are and they would wear that as a badge? And now any politician who wears that openly is is going to subject himself to ridicule. Um, being a believer is no longer a social benefit in the United States. In fact, Christians are now seen as bigots. We're, 
we're ruled by fear, we're intolerant, and many other kind of accusations can be thrown our way. And so we're being ostracized. Increasingly, we are beginning to be discriminated against even. Social media is notorious for doing that sort of thing. Um, uh, Hiding Christian truth when it violates their non-discrimination policies that they have set up. Just as recently as last week in a major web hosting platform, dropped a Christian website because it violated their hate speech clause. This just happened last weekend. Um, a, a web provider just said, okay, we're going to drop you. You need to find another platform. So like, like the Christians that Peter was writing to, we're being subject to increasing social pressure. So his purpose in writing was to teach Christians how to conduct themselves in a non-Christian society. And I would say that that is a very important lesson for us to begin learning here in the United States where we are increasingly feeling that kind of social pressure. We need to think it through. As our culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, we need to think about how how do we act and how do we think uh, with that going on. So the question then is, how did the Apostle Peter, how did he take care of it? How, How did he tell them how to act and how did he teach them? Well, he did it. By assuring the churches that he wrote to that God has them marked out as a holy nation to be unified through the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter wanted his readers to understand that the the sweeping scope of a new life in Christ. Did you know that if you are in Christ, that has massive implications for how you think and how you live in society? It's not just that we come to church on Sunday, we we sing these wonderful songs of praise to Jesus Christ. It literally changes how you view yourself, how you think of yourself. You are no longer like the, the, the people in the world who are not called out like we are to salvation. There There's sweeping change that happens in our lives. We must no longer think of ourselves and our relationships to family and society even the same way. You know that's true. I know that's true. The way that we relate to our family, when we get saved, it changes. Over and again, while I was a pastor in in northern Wisconsin, we would have people come to our church who were relatively new Christians, maybe been saved one year, maybe just got saved, or maybe been saved for five years, and they would tell us, My family is a different religion, and it has just changed everything about our family dynamic. And the the very same things that are being said about us today are being said about them individually and their families. And so, to be in Christ changes the way you think about yourself and society. It means your goals are going to be out of sync with the goals of society as a whole. And so, what I want to do is show you that Peter gives... There's four major themes throughout the book that that keeps they keep reappearing that are important for the way that Peter develops his thought. And the first one is this. The first one is that Christians are strangers and aliens in the world. Look at verse number one. If you have your Bibles open. To those who are elect exiles. Look at verse number 17. Conduct yourselves with fear Throughout the time of your exile. Chapter 2, verse number 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. These are all phrases and he's 
constantly developing the idea that we're simply strangers and aliens. And we're going to unpack that as we go through First Peter. So I'm not going to spend any time on it right now. Christians are also, the second theme is that Christians are also a chosen people. Verse number one, we're called the elect exiles. Chapter two, verses nine and ten. Listen to this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Christians are called out. They're, they're chosen. Number three, Christians are viewed as family. As obedient children, verse number 14 of chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There's that word children. He uses that quite a bit. You know, let me just pause and say this. The church, it's more than just a club. We're not the Rotary Club. Uh, you know, we're not the Shriners. We're not any of that kind of stuff, are we? We're, we're more than just a club. We're a nation. We're a family. Church is absolutely the basic for the Christian. It's, it's a brand new family. The church is not an optional gathering for those who seem to enjoy it on a Sunday morning, but rather it is something that's a necessity because we are family. The fourth thing that he unpacks in, in the book is Christians should expect suffering. Suffering is really probably the major theme of the book. Three, three verses in chapter 1. Seven verses in, in chapter 2. Um, four verses in chapter 3. Uh, six verses in chapter 4. All address suffering. It's a, it's a major, major theme. Because Christ suffered and is now glorified, that's the pattern we should expect. Think about it. Any book that tells you that you can make your own heaven on earth, whatever it happens to be, is, is dead wrong. It's, it's anti-scriptural. Because the pattern of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, is the pattern that we should expect. We should expect a suffering now, and in eternity we should expect glorification. Isn't that a wonderful promise that we have? It is. I mean, it gives us hope. It gives us uh, excitement. Something to live for. Suffering is not a cause for shame. John mentioned Lazarus this morning, right? He suffered greatly. But the Bible says that he woke up in heaven in Abraham's bosom. That's, that's uh, synonymous for uh, heaven, I believe, is what he's saying there. And so our closest bonds on earth are with this family. And as we suffer together, there's strength together as, as we do that. Now, with that as an introduction... Let's dive into the first two verses of of this little epistle. Let's look at it once again. I'm going to read it in the ESV. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may peace and grace be multiplied to you. Now, what most of us probably do when we read that introduction is we just skip over all the place names 
and we skip over all those prepositional phrases, don't we? And we just go on. We just kind of lose lose it. But I, I want you to see something about this greeting. This is a standard greeting that Peter adds a lot of descriptors to, whether they're prepositional phrases, whether they're adjectives, that make these two verses, this initial thing that he says to these churches, just pregnant with meaning. Incredible, deep meaning. I Sometimes I find it helpful to strip away those sort of things and look at what he's actually saying. So look at these verses again, and we're going to skip some of this stuff so you can get a sense of what he, his greeting actually is. And then I'm going to unpack the rest of it. Ready? Let's look at it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's the standard greeting. It has the that's the formula. That's that's what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He could have said that. He could have very easily started this little epistle with that standard greeting. And then went on. But instead, Peter stuck all these descriptors in there, these prepositional phrases that make this little introduction so theologically rich and just pregnant with meaning that it adds to and explains his verbal phrase, which is make grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so today, what I want to answer is this question for all of us, how does grace and peace be multiplied to us in our lives? How does that happen? Don't you want that? How many how many woke up this morning and said to yourself, you want I just want to have a tumultuous day? <laughs> you know, I don't want any grace in my life. I hope the cop pulls me over for going one mile per hour over. And I I hope that the tax the IRS finds that one dollar that I cheated them out of. And they gave me $250 of penalties or whatever it is. Um, you know, none of us think like that. We all want grace and peace in our lives. And so this is a very important message. And what Peter does is he says to them several things that show them how that grace and peace can be multiplied into your life. And first of all, he says grace and peace can be multiplied into your lives because they are a special group in God's eyes. Look back at verse number one. Grace and peace will be multiplied to you because you are elect exiles. That's the word. That's the phrase. Elect, adjective, exiles, the the, um, noun. Elect exiles. Their situation doesn't come as a surprise to God. What they're going through does not surprise Him at all. But because they are recipients of God's grace and goodness, grace and peace can be multiplied to them. These two words... Elect exiles are full of meaning. Now, we all know the word elect. And a lot of people get hung up on it. One way or another, they get hung up on it. It means what? It means chosen. We're going to be doing that on Tuesday, aren't we? We're going to choose who we would like to have running our government. That's an election. And that's what's going on here. We get hung up on that word elect. But before we get hung up on the word elect, realize that it's actually modifying something. And what it's modifying is the word exiles. Now, why is that important? You, Peter's recipients, were Gentiles who were spiritual exiles 
in their own country. Dear Christian, dear believer, you are a spiritual exile in your own country. This world is not our home. We are citizens of a heavenly country. And this affects how that we act. I, I want to illustrate this by using this current immigration uh, debate that we have going on. And just, just go through this. Let me illustrate it this way. When people le- live in a country that's not their own, they can assume several identities. The first one would be that they're an immigrant. And an immigrant is someone who is attempting to become a, a citizen of their host country, even though it's not their original home. Now, what do they do? When, when a legal immigrant comes in and they want to become a citizen, they learn our customs, they learn our history, and they try to integrate themselves into the society as a whole, right? That's legal immigration. A spiritual immigrant is somebody who places their concern for making a comfortable life in the world instead of representing God. Let me ask you, are you trying to become a spiritual immigrant? In other words, you're trying to become really comfortable here in our country, no matter what the culture is, and you're not being a proper representative of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because the world and its values and its goals and its culture and everything is just so influenced your life. That's one way that Christians try to act. There's a second way, and that is maybe you're a spiritual tourist. A Christian who is a spiritual tourist is one who lives in the world but but doesn't really get involved. They isolate themselves to to the rest of the world. You've seen tourists. Have you ever been to a foreign country? Um, I have. I've been to Alabama. It's, uh, I'm, I'm just kidding you, sort of. Actually, my father-in-law will, my father-in-law to this day will say, will tease me and say, hey, you're from up north or some foreign country like that. So I can, I can joke around like that. But if you've ever been to a foreign country, uh, I remember my, the first time I went to Israel, there were a group of people from Minneapolis, Minnesota in our group. And the guys, they were, they were just wimps. That's all I can say. Okay. They were in Israel for 10, 11 days. That was an 11 day tour. They're there 11 days. By day three, they couldn't wait to get to the nearest Starbucks. They couldn't wait to eat. This is what they sat around on the bus saying. I, the first thing I do when I land in the Minneapolis airport, I'm going to buy a hamburger. I'm going to get a slice of pizza. And I looked at one of the guys and I said, you seriously can't eat Israeli food for 11 days? You need it that bad. And that, that's somebody we could parallel with a spiritual tourist. A spiritual tourist fails to interact with their world, and thus they have no lasting impact at all. These are the people, they isolate themselves from the culture. They don't engage in the culture. They, they're isolationists. But there's a third one, and this is the one that Peter mentions, and that is that you're in exile. You're in exile. Unlike both immigrants and tourists, exiles... They plant themselves in their new country, but they retain the character of their original home. And so a spiritual exile is someone who 
uh, plants their life here on earth, but you retain the character of heaven. You interact with the people around you. You have that scent of heaven. You witness to them. You don't isolate yourselves. You're interacting with them, but you make sure that you don't take on their culture. Isn't that what we're called to do? We're elect exiles. And so that, that's one of, the, one of the ways that we see that uh, we have grace and peace multiplied to us because we are exiles, unlike the immigrants, unlike the tourists. So Peter can say that grace and peace can be multiplied to you because you are special in God's eyes. Second thing that he does is he says that we can have grace and peace multiplied to us because the whole Trinity is involved in our salvation. Peter confronts his readers with a string of prepositional phrases that explain how grace and peace can be multiplied to them. For us, we have grace and peace multiplied to us because the Trinity is involved in our salvation. Look at these phrases. Verse number 2. What does it say? We are elect exiles. How? According to the foreknowledge of who? The Father. In the sanctification of who? The Spirit. And for obedience to... Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood. The whole Trinity is involved in your salvation. Isn't that wonderful? They're still actively involved in your salvation. Number one, we see that the Father is the source. God the Father is the source of your salvation. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The source of your salvation is, listen, the foreknowledge of the Father. This is what Peter says. He doesn't say according to the four, according your elect exiles according to God. He says your elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. That's what Peter says. You are part of God's plan from before time began. Do you know what happened today? God didn't wake up this morning and say, hmm, I wonder who's going to get saved this morning. I wonder who's going to get saved at Providence Bible Church. He didn't wake up and say that. God knew from before the foundation of the world who was going to receive Christ as their Savior and who was going to be coming into heaven with Him. He knew what day. He knew what hour. He knew what minute. And the Bible says that He prepared for that. It was according to His foreknowledge He prepared for that. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the means. The Holy Spirit is the means. In the sanctification of the Spirit. This means that our salvation is by the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, this is what I need you to do. Everybody listening? You might, you should be plenty um, not tired today because you had an extra hour of sleep. My next two points, I'm just going to warn you, you're going to have to put on your thinking caps because we're going to dive a little bit deep. Okay? Because you need to see language. Language is very important here. Ready? I want you to notice that he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that is the means. The means of our salvation. Now, this is what I want you to do. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. I want you to go to verse number 14 because I want you to see how this works. This is what makes us exiles. It says this, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, what is he saying? We're going to finish the verse in a minute. Formerly, you belonged to this world, 
You belong to this world because you were ignorant of so many things about the other world, about Jesus Christ. And now you have been illumined. So you are no longer conformed to your former ignorance, but now you are holy. Look at what he says. Continue reading. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. So holiness is in in Peter's first chapter here is nonconformity to your former way of life. Right? Isn't that what he says? Don't be conformed to your former passions, your former desires, but be holy. And so holiness is nonconformity to that. Now go back to verse number one and two, and I want to show you this. That's precisely what it means to be an exile. We are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. So it's sanctification. And last week we were talking about that. We said that means to be set apart, right? To set, so sanctification is what makes you holy. This becoming holy, sanctified, is by the Holy Spirit. And that's precisely how the sanctification came about. You are elect exiles in or by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You have been set apart from this world, thus you are exiles. So literally from the very beginning, when you were sanctified, at the moment of your salvation, you were suddenly pulled away from the former lusts and desires and, and everything that you had in this world, and now you're being set apart from God. Immediately, on the point of your salvation, you became an exile. Now let's go on to the the last part here, the last prepositional phrase, and that is this, Christ enables obedience. So we're seeing three things here, how the Trinity is involved in our salvation, and Christ enables obedience. Now look at the prepositional phrase, because this is going to take a little bit to unpack. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The goal, what's the goal of our elect exile status. Obedience. Right? That's the goal. That's the goal. Obedience. But what in the world does Peter mean when he says, for sprinkling with his blood? Because that's a really weird phrase to us. Is that the goal? Well, let's, let's do this again. Is there anywhere else in this little epistle where Peter might explain the usage of the blood? And the answer to that question is yes. I want you to look down at verse number 18. Verses 18 and 19. This is the only other place that Peter refers to Christ's blood. And he says this, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways. Now stop. You elect exiles were ransomed from your feudal ways. Let's keep reading. Inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with what? The precious blood of Jesus Christ, right? The precious blood of Christ. All right, so here we have the blood, just like in verse number two. And he says, The sprinkling with his blood like a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, stay with me. Is there anything in those two verses that we just read 
that will link obedience to blood. Can you see it in there? Look at it. Is there anything in there that would link obedience and blood? There is. In verse number 19, the blood is not rescuing us from guilt, according to verse number 19. Look at it. Is it rescuing us from guilt? The answer is not. It is no. It's not rescuing us from wrath. What is it rescuing us from? Futile ways. Foolish ways. The foolish ways were those deceitful desires and lusts that the whole world is coming after. You see that? The whole world, those who do not know Christ, are, are involved in the here and now. They're trying to make their heaven on earth here. They're not thinking about their afterlife. And so there's no God in their minds. And so they can do whatever they want. And those ways are futile and disobedient and not pleasing to God. And verses 18 and 19 says that the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkles us and cleanses us not from wrath and not from punishment, but from futile ways. So what is Peter saying? He is saying, and catch this, this is, this is, this is good stuff. Peter is saying that Christ's blood gives us the power for obedience. Isn't that wonderful? Man, I tell you what, I don't know what I will do on the day that if, if it should come, that persecution really comes. That I really have to stand up and say, okay, I'm either going to stand up for Jesus Christ or I'm going to lose my way of life. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose this, lose that. I don't know what I will do, but I do know this. I do know that Christ's blood will see me through it and I will obey Him and please Him because the Bible says that is the power for obedience to Him. The power, nothing less than the power of the Creator of the world will give you the power to obey. Isn't that a blessing to know? Now, Peter is writing. Don't miss this. He's writing to these exiles who are being ostracized. They're being marginalized. Some of them are being persecuted. And he's saying Christ's blood will give you the power to obey Him at all times. What a wonderful blessing that is. I imagine this was a real encouragement. He was, he was helping them to see that in their fragile exile, their endangered, persecuted status was really solid. Because they were elect exiles, and that was rooted in the internal foreknowledge of God. It is by the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctifying and setting us apart unto Himself. And it's for obedience. And we can be obedient because the sprinkling of the blood is precisely what Christ did to make this happen. Christ bought your obedience. Praise the Lord. So take heart, Christian. You have three mighty reasons to be encouraged here in the beginning of 1 Peter. Peter is doing a salutation. He's inserting a string of reasons that according to the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood so that you exiles right off the bat will feel what this letter is about. This letter is about weathering the storms and being exiled in this present world. Now, how does that apply to us? Teenagers. I love teenagers. I'm teasing them all the time. Matter of fact, I have to confess, 
I think it was two weeks ago, maybe now, maybe three. Uh, Mike had started the music and I was over here talking. And so I walked around the backside and there were teenagers sitting on the back row. And, and I was always teasing the teenagers when I was in town. And as I was walking by them, I pointed my finger and I said, y'all better behave. Now the music's playing. And they looked at me. I could tell by looking her face that they were thinking, "Oh man, who's this crazy old man pastor?" Or whatever they're thinking, like, "Man, this guy's mean," or whatever. And I'm walking around. I thought, Jared, that was really dumb because they didn't realize that you were joking with them. They thought you were serious. But I, I love it. But teens, listen to me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're in the school, there, your chances are you're going to be marginalized. You're going to be challenged in school for your Christian faith. You're going to maybe be passed over because you are a believer. Can I tell you something? Take heart. You're an elect exile. This didn't take God by surprise. Glorify Jesus Christ in your schools. Dear family member, son, daughter, maybe even mother, father, you're recently saved or maybe long time saved. And your whole family is mad at you because you got saved. Because you became a Bible church member. You're no longer at your former church. And everything now is your fault. Well, if you hadn't been that way, this. We can't have a family get together because of you. Everybody's mad at you. Whatever else they say. Take heart. This didn't take God by surprise. You be a testimony of Jesus Christ. You keep loving your family. You keep praying for your family. And and one day, as God sees you through, you will get to heaven in your heavenly home and you'll see the reward that God gave you because you pleased Him at work. Dear believer, many of you in government jobs, you're probably kind of, you're a clandestine as it is already in some of these government jobs, Right? Find out you're a Christian. It means you might lean a little bit right. Uh, you're you're in trouble, right? Take heart. You know there's going to come a day when you it's either going to be Christ or take heart, right? God's with you. This isn't taken by surprise. He will see you through it. You glorify Him. As social pressure ramps up, I want you to realize that you are God's special people. That according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, He saved you. That's the source. In the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, that's the means. That you're, you're being set apart to somebody far greater than anybody can imagine. And by the sprinkling of the blood for obedience to Jesus Christ. And you can obey Him no matter what happens. Wonderful promises, isn't it? I don't know where you are. And I don't know what's going on in your life. But remember these promises as Peter, as, as we go through First Peter and Peter unpacks what that means to live as an exile in a world where there's a lot of social pressure. Lord, we thank You for these truths. Uh, frankly, I was really excited in my study this week as I was studying this. I, I don't know... How are you going to use this in people's lives? I pray that they will meditate on this truth, be encouraged by it, and love you more and more and more. In Christ's name, amen.